It seems as though, as uh, this thought hit me this week, that we are always waiting. We're always in this, this theme of waiting. Uh, kids that are still in this room here, you're waiting for something this week, right? Eight days from the day. I remember as a kid, I'm not that old, I remember waiting for Christmas. Eight days, it's coming, struggle's real. That's right. Keep waiting. You're maybe waiting just to get out of school. That's okay, too. But this room is filled with people who are waiting. We're all waiting for something. High school students waiting for graduation. Single people waiting for the right person to marry. Homeowners waiting for that upgrade to be finished. Parents waiting to be grandparents. Uh, Those in their career waiting for the next step in their career. Couples waiting for their first to be born or second or third. Parents waiting for their kids to be potty trained or their kids to mature or simply their kids to come back and see them again. People waiting for answers and why they have all the physical pain and sickness. People waiting to see loved ones whom they just lost. We're all waiting for peace in the world. Waiting for wars to end and for common sense to come again. This week I was in a waiting room for 45 minutes and I thought we're all in some sort of waiting room, right? Our days are filled with waiting and we're no different than the people of Isaiah chapter 9. They were in the midst of war and fighting, blood and death, and they longed, they waited for peace to come and reign. And Isaiah comes in Isaiah 9 to give a message of hope. Last week, first week of our series, we were in Genesis 3 and, and started with the kickoff of how we got where we're at. Last week, we're in Isaiah 7, and this week, we're in Isaiah 9. So if you haven't already, turn to Isaiah 9, very familiar passage for us at Christmas time. We're walking through Old Testament passages and a lot in these four weeks of ancient Christmas and longing for the future. And this morning we're in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And here's the main idea of this passage that I seek to argue this morning. Salvation will come for those who wait patiently on the Lord. Salvation will come for those who wait patiently on the Lord. And four points as we walk through this. A God who cannot forget, a king who changes everything, a son who is born, and a warrior who will win. As we come to chapter 9 of Isaiah, uh, and we talked about chapter 7 last week, we need to briefly look at some highlights in chapter 8 to kind of fill in the gap there between these two weeks to get a sense more fully of what Isaiah is going to talk about in chapter 9. We see in 9, as we will see, the Israelites are crushed under the trials, crushed under the problems, and and, and they're out there looking for a solution from the end of 7 because of King Ahaz, and and they look to... Uh, intellectuals. They look to smart people for help in their world. Then they look at mediums, at spiritual people, religious people, necromancers. They, 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 they're looking for some, some spirituality then to add to their life, to get answers. And, and the more they look to people of the earth, the more they see darkness. They believe if they look to smart people or strong people or religious people, they'll, they'll get the relief that they need, and yet they just see darkness and gloom and distress. 
And why are they here? They're here because God's judgment had come for them for the refusal to submit their lives to him. They were now in full-blown apostasy. They had walked away from God, being led by their king, King Ahaz, who, again, if you remember last week, chose the Assyrians for rescue instead of God. And, and, and they all now, because of their leader's choice, experience darkness, pain, and hopelessness. That's where we come in to Isaiah 9. Merry Christmas. This is Christmas, by the way. It's not Santa on a Coke bottle. Although, well, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) We come to Isaiah 9 and people desperate for relief as they're in the midst of darkness, as they wait for God. And God hasn't forgotten them. He can't forget. Look at verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he's made a way glorious, the way of the sea, the land of beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. We might think in the midst of the the details, or the people I'm sure thought, that, that God had forgotten them, that God had moved on, and, and he's, he's, he's choosing a new people, but God is always faithful to his people. And he says in verse 2 that they, they dwelt in the land of deep darkness. Deep darkness is kind of an unusual compound word that's been created by Isaiah, it seems here. It literally means death shadow. Those living in death shadow. It takes the idea of darkness and the idea of death and, and it puts them together. In general, in this world, light and life go together. You recognize, by and large, that without the sun, we're in trouble. See, when God creates a world, he starts with light, and then he goes to life. I read an interesting article a number of years ago from Popular Science Online, and it talked about what would happen if the sun suddenly went out. If the sun just stopped working. We may take it for granted, but if the sun stopped working, the whole world would be at zero degrees by the end of the day. It would be 100 degrees below zero by the end of the year, and all around the world, eventually, it would stabilize at 400 degrees below zero. Humans could live, interesting enough, in submarines in the deepest, warmest parts of the ocean, but that wouldn't last for long. Photosynthesis would stop immediately, which means all oxygen and all plants in the world wouldn't survive. We wouldn't have vitamin A or vitamin D from the sun, so our bones would begin to crumble and become fragile. All of this to say, if there's no sun, we would die. And yet, we read in Isaiah later that the sun will go away. Isaiah 60, verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor by nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall be no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. See, there is an ultimate light, one that will never end, and our mourning will end, he says, but but not yet. 
But even though we have a son, even though we, we can still continue to live here on earth, everything is in a state of decay. And we see that. We see the decay. If you're young, you may not notice it very often, but let me give you an illustration. Me, perhaps your mom will let you do this at home today, okay? The next four weeks. Take, take today's lunch, okay? Let's say mom makes a ham. What happens to that ham if it's been cooked and then set on the table for the next four hours? Does it stay warm? It grows cold, right? See, decay is happening. But what happens if you don't touch that ham for the next four weeks? I mean, if it's McDonald's, it'll be fine. But if it's ham, it will decay. And your neighbors will call the police on you because they'll smell something and think the worst. Everything on earth is in a state of decay. Everything has death coming. So there is a deep darkness still for humanity, a death shadow, as he says. But these verses give us hope. They say the light has come. The people have seen a light. They have seen hope. They've been looking in all the wrong places, as we see in chapter 8, and darkness continues to fill their eyes, but now they've seen a great light. They didn't start it. They didn't discover it. They see it. The joy is because a king is coming who changes everything. That's point number two, a king who changes everything. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What he's saying here is hope has been given for God's people. Instead of darkness, light has shone and joy has come. Grace doesn't always come when you expect it, and it seldom does it come when you're fully prepared for it. Grace comes, though, when you need it most. And grace interrupts our lives and surprises us. If you've ever been in in constant darkness and despair, you understand the need for joy. And freedom instead of oppression will come as the rod of the oppressor will be broken. Peace is coming and war will be over. See, the text doesn't merely here in these verses describe what will happen, but did you notice it praises the, the, the one doing it. There's a second person singular verb form in verses three and four. It says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its gladness. You have shattered yoke, the rod and the staff. You, you here, he's simply talking about Yahweh. He's talking about the Lord. He's talking about God. And he's, he's informing what the conditions will be like under Messiah's reign. He's informing them and then he's praising them. See, Scripture doesn't merely want us to simply understand what it says about God. Scripture's there to pull out praise of us about this God. That's what the Bible is there for us. As we read it, it should pull out praise out of our mouths and out of our hearts. As we contemplate and think about our God and what he's done for us. 
and joy will come. See, people that lived in this culture, uh, there were two great moments usually of joy that would come for them. When the harvest had come so they can eat, and when their enemies were defeated. Two big pillars of joy that would come. And, and this joy that's coming is compared to the day of Midian. Did you notice that in the, in the phrase, the, the day of Midian? Anyone recognize where that comes from? Book of Judges, right? The story of Judges, when Gideon defeated the, the oppressive Midianites without a sword in their hand. Do you remember that story? It's pretty amazing. You remember God's people are powerless to save themselves and they're enslaved by the Midianites, but God caused the terror of the Lord to come upon them when the light from Gideon's small army of 300 men ripped through the darkness. And the armies of Midian turned in on themselves, destroying one another. And there was joy in that victory because what it seemed like was there was no way to win, right? The army kept getting smaller and smaller. You know the story, right? Okay, read it over lunch if you don't remember. But it's only because God brought the victory and they respond with joy because God had done this. And so this is the theme as we walk through Isaiah 9 is that the, the, the deep death shadow and darkness, but light has come, joy is coming, and how is joy going to come? How is victory going to come for God's people? That's verse six. For to us, a child is born. Point number three, a son who is born. Verse six, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's just pause for a moment. And, and, and let our minds think through this for just a second. Armies are mounting up. Death, darkness is coming. God's people are in deep despair and depression. They, they need help. They need a victory. They need someone physically to take, take care of them, but also spiritually. And God says a baby's going to be born. God's answer to everything that has terrorized us in the world is a child. God's way through darkness and anxiety and lostness and fear and hopelessness is a baby. Are you as shocked, am I? Or is this just commonplace now, friend? The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and to all the mighty world that he can defeat them with a small child that comes. See, God's answer to the bullies swaggering their way through history is not to become a bigger bully, but to become a child. That should bake your noodle. It should astound you of the mightiness of our God. Because everything else in this world just thinks the only way I'm going to win is to become bigger. Right, sports fans? The only way the San Antonio Spurs become a good basketball team is to draft a seven foot six player. Bigger. That's the only way. That's the world's way. 
If I'm going to win, I have to be bigger. I have to be better. I have to be stronger. And, 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 and intimidate people. But God's way is by sending a child. Now, this is no ordinary child, as we see. In fact, this child that is born has four names that's given to this child. Did you notice that? When a king ascends to the throne, they're given additional names usually. These are called throne names. They function as kind of a description of the king that would reign here. And they describe his rule and his mission. And that's what we find in Isaiah 9. This is a description of our king, of, of, of Jesus. And the first one, and we're going to camp out here a longer time. That's why we're in point three already in just a few minutes. But the first one is that he should be called Wonderful Counselor. You know, we tend to use the word wonderful a lot at Christmas, right? It's a wonderful life. Anyone, that favorite movie? Do you guys watch that? Oh, I've, I heard you only can watch it in black and white. Trevor, yeah. He'll hunt you down. Or we talk about the most wonderful time of the year. But the way that we use wonderful is not the way the Bible uses the word wonderful. We use it subjectively. Isn't, isn't this wonderful? He's a wonderful counselor. He's a wonderful God. And in some ways, that's very true. It's very true. But in the Old Testament, the word means something more like miraculous or supernatural. In Genesis 18, which is another great story to, to read through and talk about at lunch, we read of a 90-year-old postmenopausal Sarah, and she's going to give birth to a baby. And God says to her, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? I, I doubt she's thinking, this is wonderful at 90 to have a baby. It, it is wonderful to have a baby, don't get me wrong, but that's not what he means there. He's saying, is, this, is anything too difficult, too hard, and in fact, anything too supernatural or miraculous for God? Or in Judges 13, 18, there's another word that talks about wonderful. When the angel of the Lord meets Manoah and asks his name, and the angel replies, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? He's not just saying, I've got a really great name. It's miraculous, it's supernatural, it's powerful. It's above our natural capacity to comprehend. And there's something supernatural and transcendent about him. And it fits, right? If we think about this, it fits Jesus, doesn't it? One commentator states, it says, the Old Testament usage of the word wonderful compels us to the conclusion that here it designates the Messiah not merely as someone extraordinary, but as one who in his very person and being is a wonder. He is that which surpasses human thought and power. He is God himself. So it's not wonderful in that it's inspiring or, or special. It's wonderful that he's miraculous and powerful and supernatural. And he's exalted. Well, he's not only wonderful, it says he's our counselor, our supernatural counselor. It doesn't mean that Jesus is your really good therapist. That's not what he's saying here. It means someone who gives wisdom. That's what counselors should do, give wisdom but he is our wonderful, supernatural, miraculous counselor because he knows everything. He gives supreme, perfect counsel to his people and we're desperate for it. Do you remember a few weeks ago in Genesis 3? 
all of humanity is plunged into death and ruin by a counselor. Right? Satan comes as a counselor. And what was his counsel? Rebel against God. The serpent slithered away into the lives of Adam and Eve and counseled them tragically. Charles Spurgeon said, It was by a counselor that this world was ruined. Did not Satan mask himself in the serpent and counsel the woman with exceeding craftiness that she would take unto herself of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the hope that thereby she should be as God? Was it not that evil counsel which provoked our mother to rebel against her maker and did it not as an effect of sin bring death into the world with all of its train of woe? See, this world... Even us, we desire more and more counselors, more and more wisdom from fallen sources. If you don't believe me, just look up how well Google's stock is doing, right? Just ask Google. We, we all do it instinctively. In some ways, we're looking for counsel in life. But this one, this child... He is our wonderful counselor, our supernatural, miraculous counselor, and we're to wait on him. Second, he should be called mighty God. The word in Hebrew can be described of someone as a hero, a mighty man of valor, or even a warrior. And, and that needs to be understood as we understand Jesus, that he is our mighty God. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did God become man? Jesus was born at Christmas to wage war on sin. He came to fight for us. Christmas isn't about a sweet little story of quietness and calmness and peace and tranquility by the fire. Christmas is about war. Jesus coming to earth was the first strike at the head of the enemy. It was the battle cry that God is serious towards sin, so serious that he comes himself to wage war against the enemy. Jesus comes to earth to do what Adam should have done in the garden and trample the head of the serpent. Jesus came to rescue his brothers and sisters from the captivity of sin because they could have never rescued themselves. And when we come to the Gospels and we read through it, we quickly realize that Jesus is an embroiled in a war against Satan and against evil. Right? You ever wondered why there's such strong demonic activity? All hands are on deck against God to stop Jesus. And, and, and Satan sees his final goal to have Jesus killed. So Jesus is wrongfully charged and betrayed and beaten and nailed to a tree. This is the final confrontation, the final stage of the battle, and the serpent strikes against Jesus. And as he hangs on the cross, it looks like defeat. Every other engagement on earth there was victory, but here at the cross, darkness covers the earth. There seems like there's no other way. It seems like everything's being defeated. And Jesus cries out in abandonment, why have you forsaken me? See, by all looks reading through it, it looks like defeat in this war. And the disciples, they believe it's all over. 
He dies and they're dejected and they take his body off the cross. But they don't realize that this death really is a victory. Then listen to what Hebrew 2 says. Hebrew 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He's talking about Christmas here. He's talking about the incarnation, the reason why Jesus came to earth, to share in flesh and blood, the incarnation. He became a man. But why? Well, the author continues in Hebrews, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is why Jesus was born. This is the point of Christmas. It's about the cross more than a manger. And we have to understand, we have to remind ourselves every year that Christmas is about war against sin and death. Because when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the day that Jesus was born to die. Jesus, our mighty God, was born for the cross to conquer sin and death. This is why we selected the song on purpose that we sang earlier that maybe you didn't recognize in the minor key, which is helpful for us. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. Anyone heard that before? It's a Christmas song. It's a profound song. King of kings, yet born of Mary, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Then the third verse, rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. This is, this is a song about war. Jesus came to earth for battle. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of life descendeth from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish as darkness clears away. This is why Jesus came to earth, that the powers of hell may vanish as darkness clears away. See, Jesus came to destroy all the works of the devil because he is our mighty God. Christmas is all about sin and Satan being destroyed. He is our mighty God. But not only that, he's our everlasting father. How often, friends, do you think about eternity? Sometimes, right, when you're not working maybe? We, we are surrounded by things that have an ending, okay? Everything on earth has a shelf life. Everything has an expiration date. Most of the food in your house should have an expiration date. If it doesn't, you should be concerned. Your vehicle will stop working. Anyone had to buy a car this year? You understand that it has a shelf life. Your house will not last forever. Your clothes will wear out. And the people that you love most dearly will die. Everything on earth will cease to exist at some point. But the Bible tells us that God is eternal, that God is everlasting, that he will have no end. And it's hard. It's hard to fathom everlasting to everlasting and, and eternal. 
you know, to stretch our minds back to our childhood and try to recall that we've experienced growing up and then, and then to look forward vaguely with imagination to what might happen in the future. It just, it exhausts us. We can't handle it. We can't bear the weight of everlasting because we're not in that way. But God is. God is at both points all the time and completely unaffected. God is eternal. God lives in the eternal now, and he has no past, and he has no future. And I'm going to try to illustrate this. It's really hard to illustrate this, but I'm going to try, okay? I shared this a few years ago. But on Friday, April 14th, 1944, J.R.R. Tolkien, anyone know who he is? Wrote a letter to his son, Christopher. Right? You know what Tolkien wrote, right? Lord of the Rings. On Friday, April 14th, 1944, he writes to his son this. I managed to get an hour or two writing and I have brought Frodo nearly to the gates of Mordor. This afternoon I mowed the lawn. Here is Tolkien writing one of the most famous novels of our century, pausing to go outside and mow the yard because it it needed it. Now there's significance to this, I believe. See, Frodo, in the story, there's no putting down the work of taking the ring to Mordor to go mow the yard. There's no pause. There's no interval. For Frodo, the imaginary character, he's not real. In the story of the Lord of the Rings, he was making his way to Mordor on the devastating journey to dispose of the one ring. And he didn't stop to mow the yard. But his creative author did. See, Tolkien doesn't live in that imaginary timeline at all. Better yet, Tolkien wasn't bound by that time of Frodo at all. He was completely free. Between writing one sentence to the next, there could be a long pause. He could have gone back to the earlier story. He could think about the end. See, the author is not bound by the time of the one he's writing about. He is free. He's the author. I don't know if that helps, but C.S. Lewis gives a, a better picture even. He says, if you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A behind before we get to B and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God is far above or outside of all around, contains the whole line and sees all. God doesn't move from A to B. He is above A and B. And God is not bound by time. He is boundless. He is eternal. He is everlasting. This should fuel our prayers, by the way. Because when it seems that God is not moving at the pace we think he should move, friends, God is eternal. He is not bound by our time. In Hebrews 1.10, the author writes of Jesus, he says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus Christ is the eternal creator of the universe. Jesus Christ is the alpha and omega, the first and the last. Jesus Christ never had a beginning. 
He is absolute reality. He is the author of all life. And because God is the author and we are the subject, he can give infinite attention for each and every one of us. He doesn't deal with us in a large group. God deals with us individually. And he knows each one of us intimately. He is the author of your life. In fact, no one knows you as well as God knows you. No one on earth will ever know you as intimately as God knows you. You know, I wonder if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, how all of this sounds to you, how you're receiving this information. Maybe it sounds a little too good to be true. It's because your eyes are set on earth, which is in right in front of you. And I can't blame you. That's all you're able to possibly comprehend on your own. But have you, have you realized that there's eternity, something that extends past your life here on earth? And do you believe that Jesus is eternal? If you reject the eternality of Jesus Christ, you are rejecting his deity. You're rejecting him as God. These two are inseparable. If Jesus is not eternal, he's not God and vice versa. Isaiah tells us here in this passage this morning that Christ coming to earth is the physical embodiment of the everlasting God, eternal God. According to the Bible, we have each sinned and separated ourselves from God. We have rejected him by choosing to be our own God, our own masters of our life. And this self-centeredness that we choose in our life leaves us open to judgment by God who will one day at the end of the world and at the end of your life here on earth will judge us. And we are made in his image. He is the author. And in judging us, he will display his glory by vindicating his character. We have stored up against ourselves God's rightful wrath for our sins. Wrath that would take us straight to hell were it not for the amazing love of God that has come to us by our everlasting Father, Jesus Christ. God the Son took on flesh. He left heaven, became truly human, lived a perfect life, and was crucified bearing God's wrath toward your sin. And all of those who would repent and trust in him alone. And then God raised Jesus Christ to life in victory over sin and death. And the call for us today, the call for you, friend, today, is to repent of our sins, of trusting in ourselves, thinking that somehow we can save ourselves, that we're good enough in ourselves, and we're to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And we are saved through that from the punishment due our sins, from enslavement to sin, and one day even from the very presence of sin itself as we spend eternity with God. 
It may seem it's too good to be true, but friends, it's true. Jesus isn't too good to be true. He is God from eternity past, come to earth to die for your sins. And so I implore you to turn for your sins, to repent of them, and to believe in Jesus Christ. And I would love to talk to you. I would love to spend some minutes after the service. There'll be a couple up here also after the service that would pray for, pray for you, encourage you, to help you to understand what it means to follow Christ now. Well, the last description here we see is that he should be called the Prince of Peace. Jesus isn't only our wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting Father, but he's our Prince of Peace. And, and what does it mean to be a prince? It means that you rule a people to be a ruler. We're going to look at that in more detail next week in Micah. But the people to which Isaiah is writing to are living in a land filled with darkness and gloom, and they begin to see a light coming. And the context here politically is the humbling of the land of, of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. I believe this is referring to the military oppression under the Assyrians. And God was, was sending the Assyrians from the north, coming down to invade the northern kingdom of Israel as consequence to their sins. And, and during this time, Isaiah's time, Assyria comes and takes the people, takes Galilee. It's the beginning then of their exile. And, and this becomes a, a physical, terrible physical slavery. And, and by no means do I want to think lightly of this. But this physical slavery is nothing compared to spiritual, spiritual slavery. The cruel bondage that we feel under sin. That is the worst taskmaster. And I believe that the political language that Isaiah uses here is to paint a picture for us spiritually of the release that Jesus brings to us spiritually. Jesus says to, in, to us in, in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Every one of us are born sinners, born in the bondage of sin. We're, we're slaves to sin and only Jesus can set us free. And this prince will come from Galilee of the Gentiles. And the teachers in the New Testament, they, they forgot this about Jesus on the earth. They forgot this about the one that was to come. We see that with the question of Nicodemus in John 7. See, essentially they had forgot Isaiah 9. And, and the people then were walking in darkness. And Jesus shines in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness. And they see a great light. Jesus comes to rule a people. He is the Prince of Peace. And there are some mistakes to avoid here. Some, some believe that, that peace is only the absence of conflict or hostility, and that's true. Definitely true in one sense. Jesus does do that, but Jesus also brings something positive. The, the peace that Jesus brings is objective and true and real regardless of how we feel about it. He, he, he brings this. Dave, uh, Ralph Davis in his commentary writes, he brings peace in this nasty world and to bring peace in such a world is a namby-pamby affair. Such peace comes by force. And then he talks about in this commentary about the definition that one Jewish man gave to him about peace, which in the Hebrew is shalom. And the Jewish man said this, shalom means we win you lose. So peace, shalom, is a victory word. It's a word of war. 
we win, you lose. This connects again to the Midianites that he talks about in this passage, right? And, and, and Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8 verse 9 said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. He, he doesn't mean that he'll do it peacefully. That's not what he's saying. It means peace comes when it's destroyed. Peace comes when there's victory. And through war comes victory and peace. Peace means we win, you lose. So the point of, of really Jesus coming, this entire passage, is that the Messiah comes for peace. A peace that comes because he fights for us and he wins. It's a peace in the wake of victory. You see, the, the, the war that we skipped over there in verse 5, for in Isaiah 5 or 9 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the image here of a, a great battle with a fierce enemy and has been defeated, utterly destroyed, and the smoke from the battlefield is lifted. And, and what you see is the evidence of war, the destruction, the remnants of fighting lying around, shoes and garments rolled in blood, and now they're gathered up for fuel to be burned because there's been victory. We win, you lose, right? The bad guys lose, the good guys win, Jesus is king. He has victory over sin and death. And then he ends this passage, and and we're going quickly here at the end, but verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there should be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, this is talking about him ruling as prince, bringing victory. And and I don't know about you, and I know we're just beginning here, but can we just write in Jesus' name for the next political election? Can we just do that? I'm ready for him to rule the earth. Because he's better than any other possible earthly ruler. Mighty God, wonderful counselor, perfect blend of power and wisdom, something that's sorely lacking in our world today. We need a ruler who's both wise and powerful. A ruler who is powerful and not wise, that's a tyrant. And you can see that in our world. A ruler who is wise but with no power, that's just a philosopher. It's not a king. We need someone who's both wise and powerful. We need the king of which the government will rest on his shoulders for all eternity. And notice here just, I think this is cool, his government is increasing. What does that mean in verse 7? His government is increasing. It means the kingdom is getting bigger and bigger. How does Jesus' kingdom get bigger and bigger? through the gospel, through people coming to know and believe in Jesus Christ who died for them, through the gospel going forth from every tribe, every language, that's how the increase happens. That's why we pray each Sunday for other countries in the world, for missionaries. That's why we pray for other churches in our area. 
that, that we will not be the only gospel preaching church in the Puget Sound, but there'll be more and more churches planted and preaching so that the gospel will go forth because his kingdom is getting bigger and bigger. So I want to give you a task here this morning. As you come in every Sunday, the first thing you should do after saying hi and not being rude to someone is sit down and pray for unbelievers that sit in our midst because they're unbelievers every week. Pray that the government that will rest upon his shoulders grows here at Edgewood Bible Church. Pray for the ones seated in your row that they will come to know Jesus, to repent of their sins, and to trust in him. And yet we can't help as we read through this whole passage to really selfishly want this to happen now. Right, you know, if we read in the Gospels, they tried to seize Jesus, right? And they wanted to force him to be king. But God is eternal and everlasting and he has his own timetable, so to say. And we learn Jesus is coming back and he will completely rule one day but now we wait. And we pray, Lord, come quickly. This whole passage talks about who he is and looks forward, right, from Isaiah's time to the Gospels so we understand he is, but it's not completely done yet. We still live in the in-between. We live in between when he first came and when he's coming again. And we pray, Lord, come quickly. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word that guides us and leads us. We thank you for your goodness to us. God, we know from your word that there's still yet more to come. We know a warrior who will win. It says at the end of the passage, God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we long for that day. We wait patiently for Jesus to come back. And we continue to worship you and serve you. And we ask that you give us strength to do this. But we long for the Lord of, Lord of hosts to come. So while there is still war and strife and sinning and rebellion in our world, we hold out for the hope knowing that Christ is coming back and so we pray that you would send him soon. Help us, God. Help us to surrender all of our lives to you. We recognize that our shoulders are not nearly big enough to bear the full weight so help us to release the pain and worry that fills our hearts and our minds and find our peace in Jesus, who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Help us, God, we pray, to honor you in all things that we do, especially this Christmas. For it's Christ's name that we pray, amen.